0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
2: Writer and educator Dr. Cesar A. Cruz said, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. So on today's show, you'll meet three people known for doing just that. You'll meet a goldsmith who turns expired abortion pills into jewelry like bracelets, rings, and crowns. And you'll meet a cartoonist who takes Disney characters and puts them into dire, real-life situations like Ariel from The Little Mermaid crawling through oil-slicked ocean water. And you'll hear from a woman who uses word art to amplify messages of racial justice How does she interpret the ebb and flow of interest in her work based on what's happening in the headlines?
3: If someone is tragically murdered by police, people are like, yeah, let's rally around this art, let's share this art. If it's a regular Tuesday, maybe two months later, interest is just not the same. And I'm like, whether y'all are interested or not, I'm making this artwork.
2: I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. from Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and I love it when a piece of art makes me feel like I'm being punched in the gut. I especially love it when that art makes me think about a big problem in a very different way. Today's episode features artists who use their talent and skill to give us all that special punched in the gut feeling that only protest art could. Later, you'll meet a goldsmith, who uses expired or unused pills and medical equipment, especially having to do with reproductive procedures, and makes jewelry out of them. And you'll hear how one of those pieces of art was forever changed by airport customs. And you'll meet a former Disney cartoonist who puts those well-loved characters into real-life, dire situations. And you'll find out why he's not really that afraid of Disney's lawyers. But first off, the power of the written and drawn word. Back in the day, Danny Koch was a graphic designer and marketing coordinator for an event planning agency in Atlanta. And then in 2019, she quit that job and started her own social media and design agency. But it wasn't until she began making some digital illustrations of her own on her personal Instagram account that people really took notice. She was combining art and words to make complex social justice-related issues more digestible and easy to understand. In fact, you've probably seen some of her work, which has also been sold at Target. Imagine a clock face, but instead of the numbers 1 through 12, there's just no, 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 all the way around, and the words above the clock say, is there ever a good time to touch a black woman's hair without her permission? Or imagine six arms outstretched, all of various skin tones, with one word written on all of them, worthy. And another one with balloons lining the bottom above them written, the pain that you've been feeling can't compare to the joy that's coming. They're all super shareable, which is something I wanted to talk with Danny about. But first, I asked her when these posts really started to take off.
3: It was on Martin Luther King Jr. Day of 2020, where I posted my first illustration on my personal Instagram. And it was about how his legacy has been watered down over time. And he's painted as this passive peacekeeper when he was a radical disruptor and a change maker who challenged the status quo and went to jail. Like He wasn't who people often painted him out to be. So I posted that. And it was the first illustration that I posted that was shared by people I didn't know. I was like, oh, that's cool. A couple people put around their stories. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if I continued to pursue this. And maybe did more illustrations throughout black history month about topics that I wish I would see talked about more or mistakes that I would hope that would happen less. So I I illustrated about things like the, I don't see color mentality and how that's not helpful in the pursuit of racial justice. And I talked about what it means to be an ally, like basic allyship principles for someone who would be new to the conversation of allyship and by the end of Black History Month, I had maybe around 10,000 followers on Instagram. And I started with like 700. I really was not pursuing anything <laughs> with my personal account. And so that was just really cool to see that happen. And yeah, I, consist- I consistently drew in that vein over the next several months. And then it wasn't until summer 2020 when we witnessed the tragic deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd that the art started to go viral because people were finding it and realizing like, oh, this is actually a really big deal. And I do want to play a part in the larger story of justice. And all of my art seemed to go viral at one time. And in one week I gained about 300,000 followers, which was unbelievable. I honestly wouldn't recommend that for anyone, but it was cool, (laughs) you know, it was cool to see the impact. Why not? I'll deal with the consequences of this later.
2: Wait, what were the consequences of this? Like, what is the negative uh, aspect to having a ton of followers like that?
3: Oh yeah, people view the positive uh, of, of course, having the large reach and being able to monetize, but then they don't see like people writing letters and letters and emails and sending it to your email about why you're wrong and the consistent harassment and bullying in my comments. I think for two years, I had my comments restricted because the abuse was so bad. So like only people who followed me could comment. I just recently took that off, like maybe a month ago. so <laughs> I'm just now feeling safe enough to like unrestrict my comments. but things like that, and then the immense pressure that whenever anything tragic or unjust takes place in the world, I have to have some sort of profound peace to speak to the moment, even if it's outside of my scope of racial justice. And so that was always difficult to navigate until I was honestly like, hey, I'm not a news source. I'm a person. The art that I create is a reflection of who I am and what I'm experiencing at this point in time. If that doesn't serve you, if that's not enough, that's fine. You can find what you're looking for somewhere else. You can make it yourself. And so that freed me up, definitely. But yeah, there's a lot of pressure as well.
2: That must be wild to be heard and seen, which is really what all of us fundamentally want in one way or another, on such a large scale, and then to be paying a price for it that constricts you, it seems like a maddening place to be.
3: Absolutely. And what a lot of people didn't always realize is that I'm processing these traumatic horrendous events in real time with everyone else. And so maybe two days after something tragic happens, in my processing of using art for healing and for movement and for justice, I might share that, but that doesn't mean that I'm a robot who has just immediately downloaded and processed this information and spit it out for your consumption because that's not what it was, you know? And I saw that that was easily something that could happen if I didn't keep a close eye on that. And so I I decided very early on, I may not always be the first person to speak to something, but I will take my time and I want to create art that lasts. I want to create art that is evergreen In the sense that you knew what I was talking about when I first made it, but you can apply it to many other areas of injustices that take place in our world. Like, I have a piece that simply says it shouldn't have to happen to you for it to matter to you. And in racial justice spaces, absolutely. But in a global space, empathy is something we all need all the time. So those are just some things that I'm hoping to work on and was hoping to achieve. At that time, to kind of take that pressure off.
2: One of the pieces that you made was the microaggressive greeting card collection. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There was one in 2020. <laughs> it was for Hispanic Heritage Month. And you asked uh, members of the Hispanic and Latino communities who were following you to send in the microaggressions that they hear most often. And the top six were for, were for that greeting card collection. And they were, you must love spicy food. Your English is so good but you don't look Mexican. You're so feisty. Oh, say something in Spanish. And no, where are you really from? There was a great nuance that you brought up in the caption of that photo about what microaggressions are uh, and what they aren't. Like people think they're called microaggressions because they only like micro hurt and that's not it.
3: Exactly.
2: I think when
3: it comes to that series in particular, I did one for the black community, the Asian American Pacific Islander community, and like you said, the Hispanic and Latino community, and I basically wanted to give a voice to other people, like you were saying, who don't, who aren't heard as often as they should be. And just the goal behind that was to say, hey, let's let's shed a light on this. And I use the greeting card analogy because people really think that they're complimenting somebody when they say these things. To you, this might seem like you're giving someone a compliment, but to the receiver, the recipient, it can often feel like death by a thousand cuts if they're hearing this all day every day if they're attending maybe a predominantly white institution or a predominantly white workspace like we need to that's a simple part of your work and so with the idea of a microaggression a lot of people have this thought in their minds of micro like you said means less micro means small but micro is not a measurement of the size of the slight it's talking about on what level that it happens so micro in this instance means happening between individuals not necessarily macro, which is like systemic and social structures. And so I wanted to communicate that and also give space for people to be like, yes, I agree. That's me. Thank you for saying that. And hopefully spark some of the work for people in ways that they weren't expecting, because we can protest and sign petitions and we can also sit and be like, have I been saying some of this stuff? I need to stop. You know,
2: I remember being around someone who commonly would say about black and brown people they're so articulate yeah and when that shell was cracked for me that that was like like what else did you expect Mm -hmm. um that was eye-opening and it was a small statement and um it got me thinking about what else am I hearing what else am I saying that is communicating I expected less from you And you're so impressive. And I mean it as a compliment, Mm -hmm. but I expected less from you Mm -hmm. because that's a story I bought into and didn't bother educating myself about. So that is powerful Mm -hmm. and lifelong. Absolutely. Yeah. I have to hear about Target and your (laughs) experience getting into Target. Um, It's, you know, it's just not every day that uh, an artist gets their work put into stores. Right. Um, And I I'd love to hear what that was like for you, how wonderful that was, but also maybe how complicated that was too.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yes. Target. It's so interesting. I I tell this part of the story and people are always like, no, but they reached out for the first time in 2020. And I was like, we're in the middle of a revolution. I can't, I'm not thinking about merch. I'm thinking about like ending injustice. (laughs) Well, clearly I was so wide-eyed and mystified by opportunity and optimism and potential for the movement so of course in my head I'm like this has never been done before like we need to focus and so I would, I said no and they were like okay we understand but we really believe in this we'll just probably be in touch and then 2021 they came back and were like hey we really think this would really do well would you consider and I was in a much better place kind of for, for the entirety of my business, even up until very recently, I've always felt like I was trying to play catch up. Like the audience was so much bigger than my capacity to meet them at their point of want or need. And so me saying no to Target at that first time was me like acknowledging I cannot take this on right now. And so in 2021, I felt like I was in a much better place. And so I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And so they, they were like, just give us all you've got. And I said, I really don't have much art. I don't just draw flowers. Flowers are beautiful. People who draw flowers are very talented. I do illustrated infographics about very difficult, ta- like I can't just crank these out. <laughs> and so I was like, <laughs> what I'm giving you is literally all I've ever created. like And so they got all the art that I had made up until that point. And um, they, were, they took it and ran with it and came up with a beautiful collection that did really really well. It was so encouraging to see how well it did.
2: One of the quotes uh, that you mentioned earlier was, "It shouldn't have to happen to you for it to matter to you." Uh, there's another quote in your wall calendar for 2022, which of course is long sold out, but uh, <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, Diversity is the fruit; equity is the root. When you hear a quote or or come up with a quote that you want to illustrate. Can you talk about the feeling you get when you're like, oh, this is, I am doing this now.
3: Like, What does it feel like
2: when you know this is a winner?
3: Oh my goodness. I love this question. I've actually never gotten it, but there is a tangible, (laughs) there is a tangible feeling that is kind of indescribable, which confirms for me, like, this is a piece that I'm going to put out. And I remember the first time I felt that way was this piece that I did. It was a small illustration of a heart, a home, and a world. And it said, until you fix it in your heart and address it in your home, nothing changes in the world. And it was with reference to racism in the inner work. And I remember sitting on my parents' bed and I just saw the piece, the full piece. I just saw it. And I was like, oh, absolutely. That's clear. That's perfect. I'm going to draw that right now. And I drew it. And it was one of my very first pieces to go massively viral. There are also pieces that didn't go massively viral. But I knew in the moment, I was like, oh, this is a piece I need to go out into the world. And it's just such a wonderful feeling, especially in the beginning when I'm researching and I'm conceptualizing the information and saying, I'm a very literal person. So if I'm talking about, let's say, a traffic light, I'm going to draw a traffic. Like if I'm thinking about it, I'm going to draw a literal traffic light. I'm a very literal person. And so when I'm sitting with information and conceptualizing it saying, I'm going to use this metaphor, this visual aid to help relay this message and I'm wrestling with it and I'm drawing, but the minute it clicks, I'm like, Oh yes, I feel so content in this. The rest of drawing, this is going to not feel like pressure. It's not going to feel intense. It's not going to feel like labor. It's going to feel like me just putting onto this canvas, what is in my heart. And those are always the most beautiful moments because no matter how it does, when it's out into the world, I know that I'm doing what I'm created to do and that is to make something beautiful or reimagine something that may already exist and whatever that looks like in whatever context from here forward, that's what I feel like I'm created to do. And so it's a beautiful feeling, truly.
2: You were talking about how some of your pieces went viral right away and some pieces took their time to get uh, some responses from people. What do you make out of, how some just take off and some simmer and slowly grow in terms of their positive responses. Like are there ever pieces where you're like, hello, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> is it really? Or like, really, this one is the one that exploded? I mean, what does that feel like?
3: Yeah, for the first year, everything I put out for some reason just was met with massive response. I'm like, I had friends even tell me, like, it doesn't matter literally what you put on there. People are just going to share it. I'm like, I think we're just in a season where people are very, very hungry for this content and for this information and for a way to feel as if they're doing something or learning how to do something better. And so that was cool. But then we have to talk about one of the most traumatic parts of this work. And that's the ebb and flow of interest based on what's happening on a, national or global scale. So it's extremely difficult to do work that ebbs and flows based on how interested people are in the topic at that moment. And so if someone is tragically murdered by police, people are like, yeah, 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 let's rally around this art. Let's share this art. If it's a regular Tuesday, maybe two months later, interest is just not the same. And I'm like, whether y'all are interested or not, I'm making this artwork. And so I think those time periods really affect the reception of the artwork, but there are people who are very steadfast and are always supporting and always doing the work online, offline. And so I just remind myself that this is for them too, as much as it is for me. And that keeps me going, but man, there's, it's such a traumatizing thing. I have friends who in 2020 made huge business decisions based on the reception of their work during that time and have had to close down different ventures and have had to pivot their content because people just so dramatically either reduced their interest in the work or took on opposing views. And so, even for me, as someone right now who gains so many followers, I regularly lose hundreds and thousands of followers and it's just something that I'm not <laughs> because I'm not consistently cranking out content like a machine because I just know what that did to me and I don't ever do that again part of that is going to be well people are going to want that from me and if they can't get it they will leave and that's okay too so I just know that what brought me to this point is not the last of me you know this isn't the end of my work it's not the totality of my contribution and what's to come has got to be better than what's behind because that's the hope that drives the work that i do the belief that what's to come will be better than what's behind us that's what i cling to in the work that i do
2: if anybody is listening to this conversation and they have these little inklings of maybe i could or i'm kind of good or i could get better at this kind of art or this kind of expression but i'm not not sure what advice would you give them
3: you don't have to be perfect to get going like Perfection isn't a prerequisite to participation in the sense that you don't have to have all the right answers, you don't have to have a perfectly planned out content calendar, or you don't have to know exactly how to contribute to your community to get going and start doing something that'll have an impact that far outlives you. And I think if I would have waited for my art to be perfect, I would not have posted in 2020 ever because I had just started using an iPad the month before. When I started putting art out, that was so imperfect. And so I would encourage other people to just not let imperfection stop you from doing that thing that you feel on your heart to do right now, because I'm glad I didn't let it stop me.
2: Danny Koch, thank you so very much for talking with me and for all that you do.
3: Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, truly.
2: We'll have a link to Danny's work and to her podcast, which is called For the Ultimate Good. That's at ctpublic.org slash audacious. When we get back, meet a goldsmith who makes jewelry out of expired abortion pills. And then meet one artist who takes Disney characters and puts them into real-life, painful situations. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. I got a lot to be mad about.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare.
1: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery, it takes about two hours, and essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: This is Audacious. I'm Kayone Wolf. Today's episode is about protest art. Later, you'll meet a former Disney cartoonist who takes the characters you know and love and Puts them into scenarios that we in the 3D world undertake, like climate change, racism, and body shaming. But right now, meet Eva van Kempen. She's an Amsterdam based jewelry artivist and trained goldsmith who tackles women's rights, health, and individual freedoms with her jewelry creations. Like, imagine a crown made out of expired abortion pills in their packets. She calls that piece Lady Liberty. And she's made necklaces out of unused IV tubes and bracelets out of birth control pills. I asked her to tell me about what was going on in her life when she came up with the idea to use these materials for wearable art.
4: Yeah, so I was uh, diagnosed with cancer right after the birth of my second child. So it was very intense, uh, obviously. But I realized when I was in the hospital receiving treatment, I just had an epiphany and just saw... How beautiful these materials are, how they could save me, and how beautifully they are made, and how all the parts fit so well together, and how the colors are carefully chosen. It just touched my heart that it was made by humans to save people like me. Yeah, and then also I realized that it's made on such a large scale, that it also has an effect on humanity as a whole. And I also saw that there was many uh, materials that were being discarded in the hospital, even when they were not used. And then, uh, like materials with water inside, just when you have chemotherapy, you get a sack of water that's in a drip that is there just in case something goes wrong. But when it's opened, it needs to be used within 24 hours, and then it gets discarded. And yeah, so these materials, I, I took them home, I emptied them, I dried them. And then <clears throat> a few years later, I, uh, I had the chance to work with it, um, started slicing them up. It was actually also because my mother was also diagnosed with cancer and she, uh, we were waiting for the, her results. And it was actually perhaps for me asking the materials to do the same for my mom as they did for me. In a way, I think I was doing that by um, working with the materials and slicing them up, um, melting them together, and it all became jewels. So it was kind mean, of intuitively working. I was trying to save the materials, also from being discarded and restore them from the meant.
2: I feel like one of your easiest to spot works is Lady Liberty will you talk about and describe Lady Liberty?
4: Yeah, it's uh, made of a crown, um, obviously uh, from the Statue of Liberty. Um, It was a reference. Um, So it was made in 2020. And back then there was a court case coming up and the work was aimed to make people aware of what was happening in the U.S. felt it was necessary to make, but I felt someone had to make this work. And I thought, okay, that's me. I have to do it. No, one, no one's doing it. So I felt the urgency to make the work. And yeah, like, art can creep into people's hearts in a different way than words can. So this was very important to try to do that.
2: Yeah, it's striking to see it because as, for, as soon as you, and, and with your permission, we'll have a link to the pictures on our website, that when you see Lady Liberty, it's so obviously the crown that we're so accustomed to seeing, but it's made out of these expired abortion pills. And and I have to, of course, point to the fact that this was made in 2020, and now uh, Roe v. Wade has been reversed. How did it feel for you from all the way over, Uh, in the Netherlands, which has a lot of freedom for reproductive choice. How did it feel for you as an advocate for reproductive choice, as someone living in Amsterdam, watching Roe v. Wade be overturned in the U.S.? What was that like for you?
4: Devastating. It's just devastating. And to know what... I mean, I cannot even begin to think of what it will mean in the future, or how long, and for how many people, how many people will be affected by this? It's, it's,
2: uh, yeah. Will you talk about the time that you made an Instagram filter with this Lady Liberty piece and what happened? Yeah,
4: um, it was a collaboration between Rebecca Fonkurs. Um she, she's uh, the lady behind Medicaid or uh, Aid Exit. It, it exit. Um, um company that uh, provides medical abortion pills by Paul's in the U.S., um, and a uh, graphic designer, Chloe Kalyani, uh, um, and myself. So it was basically a reproduction, a digital reproduction of the crown, lady, lady Liberty. And we wanted to launch it on Instagram as a selfie filter, so people could use them and they have like a digital campaign. But then uh, what happened is that Instagram uh, blocked it and
2: couldn't uh, use it at all. And the filter, if it was behaving the way you wanted it to, would be, I would take a selfie, for example, and this filter would have that crown of abortion pills. And when you open your mouth, it would trigger a pill to fall down into your mouth, right? and uh,
4: When you open your mouth, the pills would come get liberated so we have the hashtag liberate abortion pills so the pills would pop out of the crown you open your
2: mouth yeah and instagram said that's against our rule about any sort of advocacy for or advertising of pharmaceuticals yes exactly. and they tried to amend it so it just said what
4: They wanted us to take out some words, because it said, also liberate abortion pills, so they said we take out the whole words, liberate abortion pills, but we didn't want to, because this is an art project, we didn't want to make any adjustments to our work. Yeah, so there were many rules, I had a few phone calls from Instagram, trying to convince me, very kind person, very convincing, (laughs) but... Obviously, it's not uh, the way we want to work,
2: so. so you do not have a future as an Instagram PR person? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Stay in your lane, Ava. Yeah. Stay in your lane. Yeah. Is there anything I missed or I didn't bring up, or something you wanted to say, but then you didn't say it, or anything else you want to make sure our audience really holds on to uh, from our conversation? Anything at all?
4: Yeah, that's- that for me, starting to work with these materials is also um, very important to show the value and the beauty of, of these materials and of medicine and science. It's also for me, these materials are very related to the body. So the, also the scale, it's perfect for the human body.
2: Do you have any in your house? Like, do you get to keep them or are they stored away somewhere?
4: Yeah. Um, most of them are stored away in my studio, actually, yes. Where's the crown? I can show it to you. You have have it? Yeah, I'd love to see it. Okay. I need to uh, hop down then for a moment. Okay, sure. (laughs) Two words. Actually, one is also a jewel that was destroyed by the customs. See, they opened the pills.
2: No! they No! Wait a minute. Customs inspected your luggage and took this jewelry, this necklace of pills, and popped them out.
4: Yeah, it was from, uh, it came back from an exhibition in London, and the Dutch uh, custom, uh, yeah, custom, they opened it, and they destroyed my work, and I had to pay to get my work back.
2: Oh my gosh, how did that feel to see?
4: Terrible, it's, uh, I mean, on the one hand, I also feel, okay, this is part of the work now, because it's now touched by border control, so I should just land the title, (laughs) But uh, also strange, because in, in the Netherlands, I, I, I didn't expect it, actually.
2: And there is the crown. Now, was it sized for your head? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that looks very nice on you. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Where do you think that crown will be in, after you're gone?
4: Actually, I hope it would be in a museum somewhere in America that would uh, help people be reminded of what's what's liberty.
2: Well, Eva von Kempen, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank
4: you so much for inviting
2: me. We'll have a link to Eva's work at ctpublic.org slash audacious. After the break, what happens when you put Disney characters into real-life really painful situations I'm kyone wolf find out on audacious be right back
0: the torches live for one and You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast in absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project.
4: If you've never donated to the station before, that's okay. Public radio is available to everyone for free, but we do rely on listener support from those who are able to give. So join the community of supporters for Public Media Giving Days. And thanks.
0: Give now at ctpublic.org/donate. Be
3: our
4: guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, sherry, and we
1: provide the rest.
2: This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf, and oh, you remember this song, right? From Beauty and the Beast? Well, for this episode about protest art, we thought we would summon sweet, beautiful Belle. Imagine her gazing into the mirror. Now imagine she's gazing into that mirror, In a plastic surgeon's office with pre-op marker lines dotting her face, her expression is one of anxiety with just a touch of disgust. Now imagine Ratatouille in a research lab getting injected with something or Lightning McQueen from cars stuck in traffic on the 405 in L.A., These are just a few of the installments of Jeff Hong's series, Unhappily Ever After, where he takes famous Disney characters and puts them into real life, not so great feeling situations. I asked Jeff, who joined me from L.A., where did the idea for this series come from?
1: I actually started as a Disney animator. Um, I started working there after high school, working on a few of their movies. So I started on Hercules. Worked on Mulan, worked on Tarzan, and Emperor's New Groove. So, Disney was like my dream job. Like growing up, I loved Disney movies. I was like just enthralled by them. I Once I learned you could become an artist and draw on these films, I was like, that's what I want to do. And um, I was lucky enough where I was born and raised in LA. So, I was near Hollywood. And um, around the time um, when I was in high school, um, all these studios were. Starting up like DreamWorks and Warner Brothers and Disney were at the they're going strong with all their movies, so they were looking for artists. So I i kind of liked out, I was like in high school, I was like applied myself for the last two years, and I uh, ended up getting a job right after I graduated. So, definitely one of my highlights <laughs> of my career. So, I always had this love for Disney movies, and then um after four years at Disney, I went to RISD, I went to art school, um, so I kind of did a little shift where i paused my schooling and then went back to college once i had four years under my belt at disney and then at brisdy that's where i really learned more about like creativity and putting your own individuality, ideas into thought into your artwork and getting your own voice and i think that that school was instrumental in like becoming who i am as an actual artist because I feel like a, as a Disney animator, you're you're kind of drawing what they want you to do. You're kind of just like, I mean, I love it, but like you're you're drawing their ideas, you're drawing their characters. And then once I was at art school, I was like, I learned how to be an artist and like having my own voice. And so as my creative outlets, I, I I always have these ideas and things I wanted to do um, that's outside of animation. And a lot of it like comes from like my punk ethics. I listened. I grew up listening to punk rock, like listening to a lot of bands that are like very much about like equal rights and socialism and just treating everybody equal and just caring about the world and so i think putting my love of punk and disney together was sort of like the combination of this project so sort of like in back of my mind like in well going back to like art school and RISD, a lot of my ideas in illustration classes I always like putting like juxtaposition of like two ideas, two competing ideas against each other and like kind of creating this new composition. And so that was sort of like the genesis of uh, the whole Disney untitled Unhappily Ever After. Um, in the back of my head, I always wanted to see what it was like to put like maybe like a Disney princess in sort of like a urban dirty environment. And so I started doing that and like immediately um, I think the first one I did was a little mermaid. I realized like I can touch upon like environmental issues and sort of like everything. It like, it just unlocked everything. Once I started like working on these ideas, like within a few days, I had like maybe like 10 images. Like it just seemed, this thing just seemed so ripe to tackle all these issues in the world. Cause like they have such a wide variety of characters and, especially like these films that we kind of grew up on, we all have like an emotional attachment to that. So yeah, I, I immediately, once I was able to place, um, picked Ariel, I was like, I realized like I can put her in like a old spilled, oil stained beach and putting her in that backdrop, suddenly it just, it, it like unlocked everything. It was like, oh my God, this is like a great idea. Like, and then I did a few more, I think I before coronavirus, um, China had the whole pollution problem, so everyone's wearing masks. <laughs> so I, I drew uh, Milan wearing a mask and like put her in the backdrop of like um, uh, of a polluted uh, Chinese city urban out- environment. Um, of course, now I, I, you look at that image now it's like it, it, it totally changed meaning. Now it's now, now it's more about like the coronavirus and wearing masks.
2: What I love about all these pieces is how. It brings like whimsy, like almost this reflexive whimsy because it's Disney, right? We all grew up with Disney. And that means kind of a lightheartedness, a playfulness, a storytelling adventure, uh, and maybe a few life lessons we can take with us along the way and with real life. (laughs) And so that you're talking about that juxtaposition of these images with these images just to see how it feels. I'd like to hear more about that feeling, that point in the middle that you're Putting a red hot poker on of fantasy and lightheartedness and childlike wonder, and this very much adult, serious, often deadly and sad uh, imagery.
1: Yeah. I mean, like Disney Catchers, are we, A lot of the films touch on like some some dark moments like Bambi's mother died and stuff like that. But like in the end, like they all end in happy endings. Like there's always like fairy tale endings in all these movies because it's a Disney movie, like everything ends up happy. But then once you take that element out and put them into real world, like there is no happy ending. Like our world is pretty terrible right now. Like
2: Yeah, you've got one where Bambi's head is mounted on a wealthy person's wall. That's also Bambi.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like we have people who are like hunt animals for trophies, and that's that's not something that's really touched about in Disney movies. It's like there's so much stuff that I don't know. It's we're not living in a fairy tale, there's so much bad things that happen in the world, like pollution and racism and sexism. And it's like it's all these things that once you take these Disney characters and place them into the world that we actually live in, it's like wow, it's like we're not in this fairy tale world. And it, 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 I think it opens up a lot of people's eyes, because like, a lot, especially characters, like we could um, see somebody on the news or someone who's like a stranger and we just don't have that heartfelt attachment to them. But like with Disney characters, we grew up with these characters, like seeing Winnie the Pooh in a divorced area where he's lost his home, like for some reason that has more meaning than seeing a real animal that they're losing their, their homes to like global warming or whatever. I think it tugs on the heartstring of that of like we all kind of grew up on.
2: It's it's funny. Um, my producer Jessica, she has a ten year old daughter, and while she was putting the show together and coming up with some notes and some good questions for you, and and linking me to some of her favorite pictures, she said, "You know, I actually my daughter seeing me work on this show." got us talking and we because i was working on this show she and i had this long conversation about the state of the world and and she was really blown away by by that image of um bell in the plastic surgeon's office like looking at her and and she she said why on earth would anyone think about wanting to look differently it was that image that started that conversation between my producer and her daughter
1: i mean i think the other good thing about my art like it's very simple like it's easy to understand it's there is not a lot lot to read into it's like it's pretty understandable like it's easy for children to, to grasp like they understand these characters and like seeing these seeing them in the new situation like why would bell want plastic surgery like what's going on and it's like well that's what would happen if she was in girls or women in general like we're, we're just bombarded by this body image and having this ideal of like what we need to be in life and how we look. And it it's something like, I think Belle, would, like it's something she would think about, even though she was like the smartest girl in town. She didn't really care about her parents, but in our world, it's something that's very world. So like just seeing social media and like having this environment of like what the ideal beauty is and like people, unfortunately we're trying to strive for it.
2: I'd love to hear about the kind of reactions you've gotten as as you develop this project. Like, there's one image of uh, Pocahontas walking through a casino with Kokum, and the looks on their faces are <laughs> pensive, going through a casino almost like this is this is our this is for us, this is us. And there's, of course, like you mentioned, Mulan with a mask on, standing in that dense city smog. Um, What kind of reactions have you gotten from people, especially those who are represented in this work? I mean,
1: the reaction I have gotten so far, like around the world, like I've gotten people from all over that just reached out to me for like interviews, people who are are doing like college thesis papers on activist art. Like a lot of people reached out to me like, oh, you're doing... um, just like spreading the good message out and like I'm the only bad reaction I've really had were from sites like some um like the daily mail in the, in the uk like you you read the comments and there's very right wing very, like people are like who is this artist
2: don't you know never to read the comments Jeff? i know
1: i know but i i like reading good and bad like i, I want i like i like seeing both sides of the, the issue and like seeing what people are saying but there there was definitely a lot of people who were like very like oh what is why is this guy so depressed about <laughs> it's very interesting seeing like that side of um, the co- internet comments but for the most part everything with everybody was just been like so like supportive and um, my work really just lives on the internet so it was a perfect uh, medium for them for people to like easily spread it around and I think that was the best part of like my art like it's easily spread people want to see it people want to share it and I think that's the best part of about my work is like it so many people around the world can see it immediately. It's not like a art in the gallery where you have to go and view it or whatever. Like people can share it. People can like post it on their on their um Instagrams or share it to Facebook or post it on websites. It's been like it's blown me away how how many people around the world have reached out to me.
2: Because of the nature of this work it's pretty dark it's pretty dark but you know what's going on in the world is pretty dark so i wonder for you personally when you look at this wild human experience on the planet we call earth do you think there's hope for us or are we doomed to an unhappily ever after
1: I think my my answer changes from day to day because, like, just watching the news, there's always bad news. It's like every I, I keep saying this, like, I can't remember. Remember, it was like 2020, but like, oh, I can't remember. Can't wait until 2021 comes around. and Like, things will be better. And then 2021 came around. It was like, oh, it hasn't gotten better. We're still have this pandemic going on. I can't wait until 2022. And then 2022 is here. Like, it's still not better. It's like, it just seems like we're going down this dark path. Like there's global warming everywhere. I just recently went to Europe last, last month. There was like a heat wave where they haven't had such like a hot summer and such an early time of the year until until recently. I don't know. It, it's a tough time to be alive and like to, I don't know. Sometimes I do feel a little helpless. Like I, I as much as I want to like spread the good word and try to spread my art and Hopefully that people can change. I think the greater population is, I don't know, we're all just at odds with each other. I don't know. It, it's It's hard for me to answer that because like I, I want to be optimistic and I'm like I, I feel like I'm a pretty positive person overall, like just coming back and like seeing like shootings in the US like every day, and like it, it's, it's it's a tough world to live in right now.
2: So I know that you're not expecting your work, especially this particular work to cheer anybody up, but what are you hoping it does?
1: I mean, I hope that some, like someone will see it and it will spark a little change in them because it, I think definitely change happens one by one, like one, if one person can change your viewpoint on, like socialism or environmental issues and realize oh maybe i should like recycle or maybe i should not be throwing something away that might end up in the ocean um and that's that's my hope like i I don't see myself as like a someone that's going to change the world I, i mean i hope my my works will spread around and people think about it and talk about it and like have conversations about the issues i bring up but I don't know. For me, it's like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just one artist. I'm, like it, it's, it's hard to feel like I, I can do much in the world, but I try. I tr- I'm hopeful <laughs> in that regard.
2: Well, you got my producer talking with her daughter about body image. That is massive.
1: That's amazing. I, I love hearing stories like that.
2: By the way, I know you worked for Disney, but one of my first questions when I saw your work was, did he get any from Disney's lawyers? How do you get away with this?
1: I think my art is sort of covered by the fair copyright um, use. Because um, I'm not commercializing their characters. I'm not selling their their characters on T-shirts or whatever. Um, it's it's all putting their characters in an art statement. And so I think that that for me protects me as far as fair use goes. As, as far as I know, I haven't <laughs> never gotten a letter from Disney. Uh, I, I kind of expected, I was expecting one for a while, but it's... I, first did this in 2014 i've never had anybody reached out from disney to me
2: that's a relief i would not want to face disney's lawyers
1: i mean me either i when i was working for them they were pretty back in the mid 90s late 90s um they were pretty notorious about like going after like schools that use their disney characters on murals and like they were pretty ruthless but I think I think I feel like now with the internet and like memes and like if something's not negative about the company, I don't think they see as anything bad. Like it can only like be um, good marketing for them. It's also I think there's just so much out there on the internet that uses like Disney characters and whatnot. Like it's hard to go back after everybody.
2: Well, I've asked everything I planned on. Did I miss anything, or is there anything that you want to make sure that the people who are listening to this really hold on to, if it wasn't already? sort of stated before
1: i mean honestly i'm i was just very grateful that my work's been shared and has created like meaningful conversation with people that for me that's the most important thing like i love hearing that teachers are um, sharing my work with their students also i had a teacher in chicago that reached out to me a couple there she had like um two students i think they're in middle school that Picked me as their activist artist to to write a paper on. Like they wrote me letters and I wrote them back all their questions that they had to ask me. And like it it just felt so good that um, these kids were using my art as inspiration. Like they were like, "Oh, you're you're me to draw now." Like put my own voice into my own art. Like so that that to me is like was so special. Just um, just try to inspire new artists or hopefully change people's viewpoints or maybe not it, it just create a dialogue and hopefully hopefully we can bring about some change that way
2: well Jeff Hong thank you for talking with me
1: thank you so much it was such a pleasure talking to talk to me
2: we'll have a link to the work of all of our guests on our website ctpublic.org audacious our show is always lovingly produced by me Jessica Severin de Martinez and Katie Talarski With help from our interns, Anya Grandalski and Mira Raju at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like what food item the illustrator for the Great British Bake Off has never drawn, other ways to think about gender, with author and non-binary historian and activist Jeffrey Marsh, and you'll hear 40 people talking about what's gotten under their skin in an entire show called Why You So Salty. You can hear them all wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions or thoughts or feelings or reflections or anything really on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or you can always send an email to me at audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.
3: This poor, unfortunate
4: son